0: 2 Samuel chapter 14 Now Joab the son of Zeruiah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom and Joab sent to Tekoah and brought the, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments do not anoint yourself with oil but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead go to the king and speak thus to him so Joab put the words in her mouth when the woman of Tekoah came to the king She fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. Then in verse 18. And the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is this the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in my mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young woman, Absalom. This is the word of God. Good morning, Christ community. Glad to be with
1: you again this morning. I just want to say it. I I know I say it to you a lot. I'm going to say it again. A couple things. you probably hear me say this a lot, as long as you're with me. I love you guys. I'm so thankful to be up here. I'm so thankful to serve you all. I'm so thankful that the Lord has made us a faith family. And you are not loved just by me, but by the other elders we met yesterday morning. We're praying for you. We care about you. We want to see you um, be conformed to the image of Jesus, become more like him. And we're praying and working And serving to that end. So you're loved. I want you to know that. The other thing is God's at work. This has been quite a week of seeing God's hand of mercy, healing, tenderness, care for our people. So without getting into details, just know he is alive and he's at work here. What a gift that is to us. So life of David, 2 Samuel 14 today. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to it. We're going to skip around a little bit in this story. Um, but as we're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 14, let me just give you a quick recap. Bring us up to speed again where we are in the story. Um, very beginning. When we began the life of David. It began at the time of the judges. It was a time characterized largely by chaos. And kind of a key phrase from that time, from the book of Judges, was this idea that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But God heard the prayers of his people, and specifically, a woman named Hannah, she had a son named Samuel. Samuel was a prophet, and God worked through him to shepherd his people. Eventually, the people clamor for a king, and God gives them a king. They find the guy who bears all the marks of the king, the guy who looks the part. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. Saul is his name. And the people are thrilled. Saul starts really strong, and then he eventually rejects God. He may look the part, but it's not the outside that God is interested in. It's the heart. So God then chooses a man after his own heart, and that's David. He does not look the part, at least not at first. He's young, he's inexperienced, he's weak, he's tiny. But God, who sees all, can see that David's heart is devoted to him. God works through imperfect David to defeat enemies, establish a united kingdom, and bring peace to his people. He's the anointed one. David is. He's the Messiah. That's what anointed one means, bringing God's people into blessing. Messiah, that word, is commonly associated with Jesus, and we've talked about this several times through this series. It's rightly so It's associated that it's associated with Jesus because he is the true and greater Messiah, the one who's going to who did bring us lasting peace and blessing by dying for us on the cross. Now, David's role as Messiah or Savior is at this point in the narrative of his life is unraveling. His family is unraveling. And it started with his sin. We talked about that several weeks ago and then again last week. David steals a woman named Bathsheba. He impregnates her and murders her husband. God declares that he's going to have justice on David for this sin. Enemies will overtake him, will overtake David. But not from the outside, not some outside force or outside nation, from the inside, inside his own house. And then last week, we read about Amnon. Amnon, David's firstborn son, the heir to the throne, who follows in his father's footsteps and rapes a woman. He rapes his sister, Tamar. Now, if you haven't listened to last week's sermon, let me just encourage you to go back and do that. That's on the website. You can find it on the website. Um, It is a very difficult story of rape and murder and lies. But like all the Bible, it points us to the hope that we have in Jesus. So I do hope you'll go and listen to that. I said this last week, and I just want to say it again right now before I go any further. I hope, you're, I hope you're hearing me on this. We want to hear your stories. We, being the leadership of the church, this faith family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to hear your stories. We want to do for you what didn't happen for Tamar. She didn't get listened to. She wasn't heard. Her story was pushed down. We want to listen, and we want to respond And so if you are hurting from a past wound, whether it's rape or something else, not just rape, abuse, neglect, violence, please reach out. Please reach out. There's an an email that you can email. It's elders, just one word, elders, at ChristCommunityCU.com. You can find somebody here today. You can come find me. But we have men and women who want to come alongside you, who want to serve you, who want to hear your story, who want to share with you the hope that Jesus brings. This week, this week, we follow David's continual his continued spiral down and God's faithfulness to do what he says he's going to do. He told David that the judgment would come, and it is. This is what he said. I want to read it for you. It's 2 Samuel 12. God said this, Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That's what I talked about just a second ago. It's coming out of his own home. But that's not the only promise that God made to David. He also made a promise that through David's line, through his children, his descendants, he would build David a house. Not one with brick and mortar, but a house of sons and daughters, a kingdom with a perfect ruler. Let me read that promise as well. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Those two promises seem to be at odds with each other, right? The promise of the justice of judgment of God running alongside in tandem with this promise that through David, would, there would be, God would build a forever kingdom. But that's where we are. That's what's happening right here. And it's a passage that we come to today, 2 Samuel 14, where we see those running together. It's further judgment, further failure of David's passive leadership and his family's continual unraveling, but God is at work. He always is. And so here's what we're going to see today, our main point that brings us up to today. The main point, what we're going to see in 2 Samuel 14 is this. Israel's leaders are fake, but God remains true. Israel's leaders are fake, but God remains true. Just pray with me one more time. Let's ask God's blessing on this time. Oh, I'm so thankful, Lord, that you're true and we need your truth. Come and speak to us now. Come and speak by the power of your spirit. Come and speak through the power of your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you are here. You're among us. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to see that Israel's leaders are fake, but God remains true in three particular ways, three ways that we see the leaders being fake. First, we see them show fake wisdom, the fake wisdom of Joab and this woman of Tekoa that we just read about. Second, we see fake leadership, fake leadership in David and in Absalom. And then finally, we're going to see fake repentance in David's son, Absalom. That's where we're going today, those three things. Let's look first at fake wisdom, the fake wisdom of Joab and the woman of Tekoa. So I'm looking at those first three verses right now. 2 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 3. Joab is a smart guy and he's ruthless too. He is David's armed forces general, and he's smart enough obviously to lead David's army into battle and he's ruthless enough to win. He gets the job done. So, when Joab sees Absalom effectively draw up a plan and murder the heir to the throne, that's Amnon, that's what we talked about last week. Absalom hatched a plan, set it into action and overthrew the heir to the throne. Joab saw that happen. also when he saw it happen, he was smart enough to realize who he needed to align himself with. He saw an opportunity. He uses his wisdom to act on it here. And so he goes to this woman of Tekoa. That's what it says in verses 1 and 2. We read, Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Smart move. He's doing what it takes to stay in the game. But it's a twisted wisdom, Right? a wisdom that lacks integrity. There's no fidelity, there's no trust, there's no holding to God's law here. There's no submission to God here. He's true to himself. He's true to staying in power. A modern comparison for something like this might be the career politician. You kind of probably draw a certain people to mind. Someone who's willing to say and do anything to stay in power, to accomplish the goals. I recently read a story. It's a satirical story, actually, about uh, a British figure called the, called the British Victor, Vicar of Bray. There's maybe only a couple of you in here who know that. The, the Vicar of Bray. He was a religious leader. He was Catholic under the Catholic King Henry VIII. And then he was Protestant under the Protestant King Edward VI. And then he was Catholic again under the Catholic Queen Mary. And then he was Protestant again under the Protestant Queen, Queen Elizabeth. And people called him out saying, you're a shame on your role as, as the leader of this church. In his response, he said this, I keep true to my principle, which is to live and die the vicar of Bray. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to remain in power, to remain in favor. And so Joab, Joab's the vicar of Bray. He's just doing what it takes to remain in favor. He's using his wisdom to get what he wants. So he pulls in another wise person, the woman of Tekoa, and wise, when I say wise, we can put that in quotes, okay? This isn't wise like the Bible speaks about wisdom in Proverbs. This is wise as in crafty. She certainly has some intelligence, as does Joab, and, and some talent. She's about to put on a pretty elaborate show. She uses her wisdom, tells a fake story. She dresses the part, she acts the part, and then she spins this tale. She has two sons. Her, her husband is dead The two boys went out in the field, they fought, no one was there to break it up. One son killed the other. Now, rightly so, the family wants justice. Justice for the dead son. But if the other son is killed, as the justice demands, there would be no heirs. The family appears to be motivated by, this is her words, they appear to be motivated by justice, but they're actually motivated by greed. They want the land. If both sons are dead, when she dies, it's over. The land is gone. David, admirably, in a moment of sensitivity and care for a needy widow, gives in to her pleas. He effectively forgives the sinful murder of the son. And instead, he offers protection. He offers restoration for her her son, and really, if you think about it, her family tree. It keeps her family established. But of course, we know it's all a trick. She's turning David's emotions against doing what's right. That's really important. Do you remember what the prophet Nathan, who was a, a wise man in the right kind of way, what he did when it came to the issue of Bathsheba? He also told a story. Nathan was sent by God to use a story to arouse David's conscience against his feelings. David felt like he could take what he wanted to whenever he wanted to. And so he took the woman. That's what I felt like. That's what I did. But the story awoke in David, his conscience. And what was his response? This is what he said. I have sinned against the Lord, the conviction of sin. But what about the woman of Tekoa, this wise woman? What happened in that situation? In her situation, it was the opposite. She was sent by Joab, not God, to arouse David's feelings against his conscience. When what David should have done if he was following his conscience in this particular circumstance, his execute judgment, bring about justice, he needed to punish him, Absalom. He needed to show him the consequences of his sin. That's what David's conscience should have been telling him. But instead, the woman of Tekoa shrewdly uses David's emotion to do something that he shouldn't. You see that? So Slick. It's so smooth. She slides it in there, and before you know it, he's already capitulated to everything she wants him to do. Joab and the woman of Tekoa, they pool their wisdom, and they get it done. They, they come away making the wrong thing look like the right thing. Friends, I'm going to say this again, and you've heard me say it before. I'm going to say it far into the future, too. We must be people of the Bible. We must be cling to the truth. David had wandered away from the Bible. He wandered away from the book. He was not living according to God's word. I mean, the guy helped write the book, right? But he wasn't in the book. He wasn't meditating on the book. He wasn't letting the book change him. He wasn't living in accordance to God's law. So he fell prey to twisted truth. How much more, if this is David, if this is David, the man after God's own heart, how much more do we need to be in the word of God? The world and Satan conspire to tell us all kinds of stories to make evil look like good, to make wrongs look like rights. Stories about liberation of sexuality and gender identity. Stories about success and financial freedom. Stories about what lines and boundaries are okay to cross physically before marriage. You have to run, not walk. You have to run to the word of God. Immerse yourself there. This is true food for you. This is true drink for you. This is what your soul needs. This is wisdom and guidance. Because in here, in this book, in the book in your hands, what grace this is, here you get God. You come to the word of God to get the God of the word. You, by the power of God, working through his authoritative word, are brought face to face with Jesus Christ, in whom, the scriptures say, are hidden all the treasures Of wisdom and knowledge. Go to the book. So that's the first one. We see fake wisdom in Israel's leaders. And next we see fake leadership, the fake leadership of David and Absalom. In some ways, just taking a step back and thinking about David as a whole, in some ways, David has been an excellent leader. We've tracked with David's life right and a few things have stood out to me i'm sure some things have stood out to you about his good leadership first of all he has a passion for god and he models it he wrote psalms like this oh god you are my god earnestly i seek you and when the ark the presence of god came into the city he danced with all of his might for joy because god was coming to dwell in the city with him. He loved God. He had a passion for God. Second, he trusts in God. We've seen this in a variety of ways through his life. And probably the clearest example, or at least the one that my mind goes to first, is when he's running for his life and he's going from cave to cave to cave with his men. And he's running from Saul. Saul wants to murder him. And by sovereign design Saul walks into the very cave where he and his men were hiding what a chance all he had to do was cut him down he could have taken the kingdom by force but he didn't he held back and instead he trusted in God and then one more way that we see David's good leadership he's repentant he's repentant this is really sweet and powerful about him there are several examples but probably most clearly we see this in the case of Bathsheba. He says this in Psalm 51. He says, "Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your holy spirit from me." He's repentant. This is a great leader. He's repentant, he trusts in God, he has a passion for God. That's why the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. But sadly, when it comes to leading his own household, in many ways he failed. Last week we talked about his passive lack of action at home. He did not protect his daughter Tamar. He did not bring justice for her. He did not punish his son Abnon for the evil of his rape. He did not rebuke Absalom for his murder. He gives them what they want. He got emotional, but he did nothing. In this week, we see further evidence of his parenting failures. David relents to Joab's scheme. The boy can come home. At first glance, it can seem like David has done a wise and gracious thing. But we must see that David is continuing to disobey God. He passively does not execute justice. Think about it from this perspective, from a different perspective, not Absalom's perspective or David's, but the people of Israel, the people whom David has been entrusted with to protect and to serve and to lead. What might appear gracious is actually incredibly ungracious to them because he has just welcomed an evil man back into the courts, back into the highest levels of leadership. Earlier in 1 Samuel, before David comes in, it tells the story of a priest named Eli. Eli had two sons, and they did terrible things. They did terrible things in the places where God was worshiped. But Eli gave him a little slap on the wrist. Boys will be boys, that's what they're going to do. David's parenting fits that mold. David's sons did evil things. I don't want to have to rehash all the details of Amnon's rape for you. I don't want to have to reconsider again the lying, the scheming, the murderous plots of Amnon. We're going to see a whole lot more to come of of Absalom. I'm sorry. We're going to see a whole lot more from him. David looks like he's being such a nice dad. Oh, shucks, guys. I, I, I know you didn't mean to. Come on back. But this is sin. No consequences for wrongdoing. And instead, indulging his children's desires. Brothers and sisters, sin has consequences. You don't need me to tell you that. We know that from the Bible. You reap what you sow. God's not only talking about farming. What you you sow, what you plant, what you cultivate, you will reap. We know this in many ways from life. If you do something wrong, there's going to be a price to pay. If you overindulge in something, there's going to be a price to pay. As parents and as kids, all of us, we need to respond to this. And I don't just mean biological, physical parents and kids. I definitely mean that situation too. But it applies to every person, every person who considers themselves. A Christian, you have been brought into a faith family by the blood of Jesus. These relationships are important. This applies to all of us. So hear the warning from this passage. Overindulgent. No consequences for sin. Parenting ruins children. Overindulgent. No consequences for sin parenting ruins children. When David parented Absalom, there were no consequences for his wrongdoing. Instead, David gave him what he wanted, just like David effectively gave Tamar to Amnon. When David didn't act in that situation, what he was saying is, you can do, you can have everything you want, even if it is my daughter." That's fake leadership. And if we don't lead those younger than us, those entrusted to our care, whether they're our biological children or they're others around us, if we don't teach those under our care and remind one another that with sin comes with consequences, that indulging in whatever you're, play, whatever you're indulging in without any inhibitions, without any limits, that with that there is a sowing, with the sowing there will be a reaping If we do that, if we don't hold back, if we don't correct that wrong, we are cruel. Early on in my parenting, I read this little book. It's called The Duties of Parents by J.C. Ryle. You might like it, you might not. There's some pluses, some minuses. That's the way it is with every parenting book. It was really beneficial to Darcy and I. I think on this particular topic, J.C. Ryle really hits the nail on the head Specifically, in the process, referencing David's parenting. And this is what he said. I think this is helpful. Spoiling is a very expressive word and sadly full of meaning. The shortest way to spoil children is to let them have their own way. To allow them to do wrong and not punish them for it. Believe me, you must not do it whatever pain it may cost you, unless you wish to ruin your children's souls. That's quite a stiff warning. Though the immediate context of this passage is parent-child relationships, this applies to our faith-family relationships as well. When you become a member of a church, you're actually joining a family. So when one of us is heading in a direction we shouldn't go, one of the cruelest things that we can do to one another is to just ignore it. Forget it. It is so much easier not to say anything. It was 8.15 on the clock this morning, friends. I was ready to come to church, and I had a two-year-old who would not apologize to his brother. It is so much easier for me just to be like, oh, fine, whatever. I got to go. I got stuff to do. But in that moment the Lord used this word to me and said, I've got, "I I can I've if I'm going to preach this, I've got to do this." He apologized eventually. That's not fun. That takes time. That is hard. That takes effort. That takes sacrifice. That's what God calls us to though, as brothers and sisters, to stay with our brother and sister through the fight, to with tears and gentleness and tenderness come alongside them and point out what is wrong and help them toward what is right. Need I say at this point how important community is, real community. Stop hiding. Stop running from the church. If you're not coming regularly, come, stop. Just repent. Come, receive the grace of being here with other brothers and sisters. You need that. I need that. We all need that. But what if you've made these mistakes? What if you're making these mistakes? What if, as a parent, you made these mistakes already, or you're making these mistakes right now, or you're making these mistakes in your relationships with other believers? Do not forget that all of us live in the shadow of the cross. We all do. Because of the cross, our parenting failures, our relationship failures have been washed away. Do not sit in the condemnation that Jesus has removed from you. By faith in him, you are forgiven. And because of the cross, because of Jesus, we have a hope that far exceeds our efforts, any effort you might give toward parenting. We have a powerful Savior sent by a father greater than the greatest father on the face of the planet. He, Jesus, defeated death and sin. He rose from the grave. He reaches into hearts and he brings new life. He's the one who has the power to work in our lives and in the lives of our kids and in the lives of people all around us. That brings great hope. Sadly, David isn't the only leadership, fake leadership we see here. By the end of the chapter, Absalom is back in business. This is a total comeback. David has allowed him back into Jerusalem, and now he's starting to consolidate power. And then we have this little interlude, these little verses, verses 25 through 27. If you have your Bible, you you can glance at it. It, it flows, honestly, somewhat awkwardly through the narrative. If you read the story and you skip from verse 24 to verse 28, it flows normally. But the writer put it here for a reason. So let's ask ourselves, why is it there? It's, what it's talking about, essentially, is Absalom and his good looks. This has the whispers of Saul all over it. That's why I mentioned him at the beginning He looks the part. Absalom looks the part. Absalom has got it all. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, this guy looks good. I feel especially qualified to talk about this man. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about right now. When this guy got haircut, five pounds of hair per year. I'm a little jealous. Y'all can laugh. It's okay. I get it. I used to have hair, guys. I did. It was longer at the time. Okay. He's a handsome guy. He's a hairy guy. (laughs) In a handsome kind of way. And his family is growing. Why is this here? What is going on? Why are we directed to this? This is a textbook in fake leadership. We've seen this before. Saul looked good, but the inside was corrupt. Samuel grabbed the horn of oil and he looked at all of David's brothers. Oh, look at big, strong Eliab. Look at the next brother. They're all big. They're all sturdy. They're all good looking. No, 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 no. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And we know that this man, Absalom, is sadly corrupted in his heart which leads him to what we finally see at the end of the chapter. Fake repentance It's the last bit. If you, look at, if you look at your Bible, verse 33 says this, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king, that is, Absalom came to the king, and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Absalom manipulates Joab into speaking to King David. Joab gives in, Absalom comes into the throne room. He bows himself in his face, face to the ground. What a transformation. Wow. Absalom's repenting. He's humbling himself. But it's not real. Next week, we'll hear about where Absalom heads next. And just suffice it to say, this is fake. It's a fake repentance. Repentance in form only. This is the unraveling of the kingdom at the command of God. The fake wisdom of Joab and the woman of Tekoa. The fake leadership of David and Absalom. And then finally, this fake repentance of Absalom. God is doing what he promised. But do you remember what I said at the very beginning? There was another promise God made to David. The promise to build David a house. A kingdom through one of his children and that still holds true. And it runs like an underground river feeding life throughout the whole story of David. Though it looks so dead at this point, there is a profound river of grace flowing here. One day, David's descendant named Jesus, the long-promised son of David came. And though David lacked wisdom, to see and say what was right, Jesus could with perfect insight see into the hearts of men and women. And when people heard Jesus' wisdom, they would say, no one speaks like this man. Though David lacked leadership toward his wayward son to execute justice, Jesus perfectly led, welcoming us his wayward children, home, not by ignoring sin, but by executing justice on himself for us, taking our place on the cross. Though David's welcome to his unrepentant son is short-lived, Jesus, by his blood on the cross for us, welcomes home all repentant sons and daughters that's for you, welcomes him into his kingdom forever. Praise God. Lord Jesus, we worship you. You are the true son of David. We see so much failure in this passage, but we see so much failure in ourselves. But thank you for the cross. Thank you that you are true wisdom. Thank you that you are a true leader who took our place. Thank you that you have welcomed us in. We worship you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray, amen.